of a four-part series to understand the various holidays that take place over the next month or so is dedicated to understanding what is the last month of the Jewish calendar referred to as Elul, named Elul, what is the unique work and what is the unique essence of this period of time of Elul in preparation for Rosh Hashanah. I might note the fact that throughout our literature, and especially in Sephardic custom, with the beginning of the month of Elul, which is the last Hebrew month before Rosh Hashanah, before the new year, Slichos, prayers for forgiveness, are said every day in Sephardic custom. In Ashkenazi custom, the last week, right before Rosh Hashanah, Slichos are said, as they are said, the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. However, there seems to be in our literature a reference to the entire month of Elul not simply being a 30-day notice on Rosh Hashanah, but that there is a certain quality and a certain essence to the time of Elul that has its own spirit and its own flavor, and obviously as an introduction to what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Now, God willing, we'll speak about Rosh Hashanah next week, and next week I'll have to figure out how this class fits into next week, but for today, we'll try to examine, we'll try to explore what the month of Elul is all about. There is a very interesting verse in the prophets, prophets that refers to this period of time up until, oh, till almost the end of the Sukkot holiday. The verse says, and I've quoted this in past years, Aryeh Sha'ag Milo Yira. When the lion roars, who doesn't instinctively and naturally you get afraid, get scared. And the Gemara says, and the Talmud says, that the word Aryeh in Hebrew is spelled with an Aleph and a Resh and a Yud and a Hey. And the Talmud says that the Aleph is the first letter of the month of Elul. The Resh is for Rosh Hashanah. The Yud is for Yom Kippur. And the Hey is for Hoshana Rabbah, which is the final day of asking for forgiveness towards the end of the Sukkot holiday. So it would seem, even from our literature, even from the literature of our prophets, that Elul got in there, together with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Hashanah Rabbah. You know, it occupies place, together with the holidays. It is some kind of an entity. It is some kind of a creation in time that we need to explore in order that we should be able to link ourselves up with it and gain from it as we link ourselves up to most significant times, if not all significant times, in the Jewish calendar. My question is, what is it? What's the essence of this time? Now, it was mentioned uh, in introduction to this class, it was mentioned that there is a custom to blow the shofar, obviously not all hundred sounds as we do on the two days of Rosh Hashanah, but there is a custom to blow the sounds of the shofar like the basic stanza, at least one, one rendition, okay, of the, of the blowing of the shofar, which would include the tekiah, the simple, long, straight, unbroken sound, the shvarim tru, which is the broken sounds, and then the tekiah that comes at the end of every stanza that completes the stanza. 
And there is a custom that while the biblical commandment to blow the shofar is only on the day of Rosh Hashanah, in custom, in Jewish custom, we blow that symbolic blowing of the shofar every day of the month of Elul. And we would have even blown it on the last day of the month of Elul had we not wanted to at least make one day of distinction between the custom to blow and the biblical requirement to blow. So really the custom to blow the shofar is really something that really takes in the entire month of Elul. And the reason for this or the origin of this custom is as follows. Moses went up for a third period of 40 days up to the top of the mountain of Sinai to pray to God for forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. I'm not going to go through the entire calendar for the sake of time, but on Rosh Chodesh Elul, on the first day of the month of Elul, Moses ascended the mountain for the third time. On his second visit, he prayed for 40 days and God said no. But Moses went, then the first time he wasn't praying for forgiveness, he was learning the Torah. But the third, Moses didn't give up, and he went up a third time on Rosh Chodesh Elul. And when he went up on that day to start a 40-day period of prayer, the Jewish people blew the shofar that morning when he went up. And the Talmud tells us, not the Talmud, it's a Pirkei de Rebelazu, which is equivalent to Midrashic literature, which is, for all intents and purposes, equivalent to Talmudic literature. It comes from the same, same sages. The Pirkei de Rebelazu teaches us that the reason why this was done is because, if you're familiar, the sin of the golden calf was indirectly caused by a miscalculation of the time of Moses' ascent and descent from the mountain. They knew that Moses, the first time that he went up, was going for 40 days. They figured that the day that he went up would be one of the days, even though it didn't have the night with it, and they counted it as a day, and they therefore expected Moses to come down at, a, at X hour, and when he didn't come down, they began worrying that Moses had in fact died, and that they would be left alone in the desert, leaderless, and without any real connection to God. And being that this was the mistake that they had made, it was a miscalculation of time, so this time when Moses went up, they blew the shofar as if to say, be careful how you count, and let's not repeat the same mistake we made the first time. This is what the Pirkei de Rebelazah says. So in other words, it was a blowing as if to say, let's all be careful how we count so as not to make the same mistake as we made the first time. Now, it is quite interesting to note that Moses had gone up once previous to this in prayers for forgiveness, and that time they didn't blow the shofar. But this time when he went up, they blew the shofar, telling everybody, be careful how you count as not to make the mistake. So the Pirkei de Rebelazah says that when they blew the shofar on that day, Rosh Chodesh Elul, God was elevated, so to speak, to a tremendously high place, whatever that's supposed to mean, and obviously I'm going to try to explain what that means. And 
God was raised, so to speak, with the blowing of that chauffeur, whatever that means. How do you raise God? We look for raises. Well, since when do we raise God? But we'll see what that means a little bit later. And based upon this, the Jewish custom was established that we should blow the shofar, but not only on the first day of Elul, but for the entire month of Elul. The entire month is to remind us of that blowing of the shofar when Moses went up. So this is the origin of the blowing of the shofar. And it's my belief that the same way that the day of Rosh Hashanah has its major theme played out, and that's not a pun, in the blowing of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, I believe that the essence of Elul is really played out in the blowing of the shofar of Elul as well. It's expressed in the blowing of the shofar of Elul. But what is the blowing of the shofar of Elul supposed to mean? What kind of a voice, what kind of a message are we supposed to hear, and how do we hear it from the sound of the shofar? I'd like to point out an interesting, I'd like to pose an interesting question. In that time, when Moses went up on the mountain, and they didn't want people to make the same kind of mistake that was made earlier, why did they, in that period of time in Jewish history, take up the shofar to blow? They certainly could have put up posters. They could have certainly sent out a fax. They could certainly have told everybody, listen, Moses is going up, but don't mess your counting up. Like, why did they take up the shofar? Who told them to take up the shofar? Why did they need, like, why did they select the shofar? Why didn't they take trumpets? Why didn't they take a bag of pipes and blow it and say, don't, you know, don't make a mistake like you made it. Blow a bullhorn. I don't know. What, what do you need the sound of the shofar for? Obviously, in continuity of the what they did, we take up the shofar. So the question isn't why we take the shofar, but why did they take up the shofar as a way of making this proclamation? So this is a question that needs to be explored. Now there is also there is also another there is also another interesting interesting element that I think we need to to explore in regards to the uh, to the shofar in general. Now what I'm going to share with you is something about the shofar of Rosh Hashanah. But the reality is that it's really reflective of what the character of the shofar is as well. The Talmud teaches us that a when you use the shofar, which is the ram's horn, one is not allowed to use a horn that comes off a cow. Why not? So the Gemara says, the Gemara says because a cow gives birth to the agel, to the, to the calf, and that'll be too much of a memory of the sin of the golden calf. And we don't want to use something on the day of Rosh Hashanah that can immediately be associated with the fact that we sinned in the sin of the golden calf. The Talmud has a particular way of saying this, that which is potentially a prosecution for us we don't want, or we don't want a chance using it as a, as a defense counsel for us. Not too many people take the prosecution lawyer and try to, try to get him to argue your defense. And in similar fashion, the Gemara at the Talmud says, 
We don't want to take the shofar of a para, of the cow, because it's too close to comfort to the calf that would be a memory of the golden calf, and therefore we don't use it. Now, the Talmud has a problem with this, because the Talmud says that the rule, that a potential argument of prosecution, we don't want a chance it to be a defense counsel for us, is an argument that we use, but we only use it in regards to going into the Holy of Holies with a reminder of sin. For instance, the high priest wore eight garments, four out of white, and four that were made with gold. They had gold in them. And the Talmud tells us that when the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he did not go in with any gold. Why? Because he did not want gold would all be a reminder of sin, golden calf. And therefore, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he did not wear his golden garments. Outside of the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary proper, he wore his eight garments. That's what they were there for. That's what he wore them in the, in the sanctuary. But when he went into the Holy of Holies, there it was a little bit chancy, because that's memory of sin, and who says that it's going to be able to become a defense counsel? So the rule that we don't use something that is a potential reminder of sin is only true in the Holy of Holies. But outside of the Holy of Holies, outside of the Holy of Holies, it's not a problem. You can use anything of, of gold. So the Talmud says, if outside of the Holy of Holies you can use even gold, and you're not concerned about the memory to sin, the association with sin, so why can't you use a shofar out of a para? Why can't you use the horn from a cow? The horn was never taken into the Holy of Holies. It was used outside. So it's no different than the garments of the high priest, the same way that a high priest could wear golden garments in the sanctuary, just not in the Holy of Holies. So the shofar was never taken into the Holy of Holies. It was in the sanctuary. So in the sanctuary, why can't we use even the shofar of a para, the shofar of the cow? This is the Talmud's question. And the Talmud gives a phenomenal answer to this. And the Talmud says like this, you don't understand what the power of the shofar is all about. The power of the shofar is such that it takes the Jew from wherever he is and it places him in a holy of holies. For the time of the blowing of the shofar, the Jew is transformed and, and transported into a personal holy of holies with God. And therefore, since the power of the shofar brings me into a situation of oneness with God, similar to the high priest in the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies we don't want to have memories of sin, so we don't use the shofar that comes from a para, that comes from the cow. Now, this is a very interesting statement about the shofar, but what on earth is it supposed to mean? What does it mean that a shofar takes me into the Holy of Holies? What is that supposed to mean? Most of you, before you came to this class, most probably would have answered to the question, who goes into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. And when? Only on Yom Kippur, only on the Day of Atonement. And tonight we learn that in a certain sense, with a temple, without a temple, every single Jew that stands in assembly listening to the sound of the shofar is going into a personal Holy of Holies in communion, you'll excuse the expression, with God. What is it supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean? 
so let's try, let's try over here to develop a concept. All right? I'll present the concept. And then we'll try to develop it and show all of its applications in terms of our traditions and then show some practical applications in terms of our lives. And I would start by saying like this. There is a verse, there is a verse which we recite interestingly enough on Shabbos, which ends off with the following words. Adam ubehema toshia Hashem. Which literally means in English that both man and animal, God will save. Adam ubehema toshia Hashem. God has mercy, God has compassion on all of his living creatures. Adam ubehema toshia Hashem. So the Talmud in Chulun teaches us an interesting interpretation of this verse. The Talmud in Chulun says like this, that when it says Adam Ubehema, man and animal, it's really talking all about man. It's not talking about man and animals, it's all talking about man. How do we read it? We read it like this. Elu b'nei Adam, we are talking about individuals, Shehem arumim bedas Adam that they are intelligent, bright, astute, spiritually intuitive. Right? They have all of, their all of their sensitivities very sharp. They are clever and sharp like people. Right? And nevertheless, when it comes to the will of God, they have the willingness and the subservience very similar to an an, of an animal to its master. Now, what is this supposed to mean? What this is supposed to mean is like this. And I'm going to explain it on a couple of levels here. On one level, what this means is like this. The human being is intelligent, or at least he's supposed to be. The human being is intelligent. And when a person is intelligent, he usually would like to understand what he's doing before he does it. And when it comes to religion and when it comes to Judaism, this also holds true. I'm, an I'm a human being. I try to have a commitment to God. I want to have a relationship with God. But I am a thinking individual. And I need to understand what it is that God wants and possibly why God wants it, and why is it right for me, etc., etc., all of the questions that we would ask about Judaism. All normal. Now, let's say you have an individual, and I'm just taking a hypothetical case. Let's say you have an individual that basically is familiar with Judaism, learning about Judaism, has been pleasantly surprised that some of it really makes sense. He never thought it was so relevant. And then all of a sudden, after having somewhat of a track record of seeing the wisdom and the insight of Judaism, he comes upon something that he doesn't understand. He, doesn't, he can't fathom it. In his mind, it just doesn't sit well. There are different ways that people say this. I don't understand it. I can't swallow it. I can't digest it. I mean, whichever way you want to put it. Now, Immediately, man is put into the situation of a spiritual test. What is the spiritual test? If man were only to follow his intellect, and that is his yardstick about everything that he decides to do or not to do, technically speaking, 
man would turn to God and say to God, I am very sorry, but you are incomprehensible in this area, and therefore, please excuse me, but I cannot observe this. I cannot, I cannot do something that I don't understand. Better yet, if you're very righteous about it, you might even say to God, not with any kind of apology at all. You can say to God, you cannot expect me, and you can't insult my, my intelligence to expect of me to do something that I don't understand. Well, that's one way of looking at it. However, there is another way of looking at it, which you can imagine is the way that Judaism teaches us to look at this kind of a spiritual test, and that is that I say to myself as follows, it's wonderful if I could observe with knowing every step of the way why I do what I do, so that everything sits well, to a point that everything that I do, I don't even do it because God asked me to do it so much as I do it because it makes sense to me to do. And once it makes sense to me to do, I'm doing it because I want to do it, not because God wants me to do it. However, there is a scenario where rather than saying I'm doing it because after all of the convincing, I want to do it because I want to do it, not because somebody asked me to do it, even if it's gone, there's another scenario which goes something like this. I don't understand this. However, I am prepared to say that I am not the ultimate judge of wisdom. And I am not the one that's going to stand and say that it is an insult for me to do something that I don't understand. It's not at all an insult. Because to listen to God and to trust God, all right, it should not be an insult to man. In fact, I know very well what my place is, and I know God's place. And my wisdom can't compare to God's wisdom. God has infinite wisdom. Mine is finite. And therefore, I am prepared with a certain level of humility to say that I have limitations in my understanding. And I am prepared with a certain amount of trust to say that bearing in mind this limitation in my ability to understand, I can trust God on this and proceed to do this not as an act of intellect and because it sits well with me, but because I am humble enough to know that there's a major distinction between my capacities to understand and God's, and in that difference, I am prepared to trust God. This, I, might tell, I must say, is a major, major struggle for man. In Hebrew, there's one word for it, hachna'ah an ability to be able to see the distinguishable differences between man and God, and because of the distinguishable differences, to have an attitude that reflects humility and reflects a certain trust because of the superior wisdom and knowledge that I believe God has above my own. This is referred to as humility. And I would refer to it in the kind of example that I gave to you, Humility that exercises itself within the intellectual arena of one's relationship with God, which basically says that to the extent that one can understand, he's required to understand. But when he reaches the place where he cannot understand anymore, then he stands back and he says, one minute, I am no competition for God's wisdom, and therefore I am prepared to surrender my own opinion to God's opinion, 
with all humility and with all trust. So the Talmud in Chulun says, Adam Hashem, that man and animal God will save. So the Talmud says we are talking about Adam, we're talking about a human being. That's Arumim Bedas, that he's very, very clever. And he's prone to make all of his decisions because he wants to, because he understands. He or she understands. However, but they make themselves like an animal that serves its master. What does an animal do? Did you ever see a master take an animal, an animal that was made to work, and you take the animal out to the field to plow the field? and you attach the equipment, equipment, I realize it's mechanized today, I'm not, so, I'm not so antiquated, but just take that kind of an example, okay? Did you ever see an animal turn back to its master and say, sorry, I belong to the union, and I'm not working today? You don't, you, you don't, you don't find that. A behemoth takes on what its master gives it, if it wants, if it doesn't, if it understands, or if it doesn't, I would doubt an animal understanding why it has to work all day. But they make themselves like the animal, they take on the duty of their master. So what does the verse say? A person that is clever, and nevertheless he doesn't let his cleverness get in the way that he should think that he's smarter than God. Right? That's the person that ultimately God will always be there to help him and to save him. This is what the Talmud says. Now, I might note that if we would be talking about a half-wit, or if we would be talking about a person that would be very deficient in the upper story, it would be much less of a challenge to tell them, listen, you have to do as you're told to do and stop asking so many intelligent questions. It's not a challenge for a person that to begin with doesn't have too much firepower in the upper story to follow as he's told. But the more intelligent, the more aware that a person is, the more hooked up a person is to spiritual things, the more prone he is by his nature of, of, of his ta spiritual talents to want to know and to function out of knowing and to function out of intellectual appreciation and to be tempted to push aside anything that can't be intellectually appreciated. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. I'm going to make a statement here, which is a blanket statement which needs a lot of proving, and I'm going to prove it a little bit later on in the class. But I'm going to make the statement so as we should proceed to understand the answer to, this que to the questions posed, and then we'll develop it more. The power of the shofar, listen carefully, the power of the sound of the shofar, there are, there are spiritual powers to the sound of the shofar. The spiritual power to the sound of the shofar is that it introduces into the soul of man the ability to acquire a humility in his relationship towards God. Now, where that comes from, we'll explain. But let's just work with the premise that if one would want to define as accurately as possible what is it about the chauffeur, or what is the mechanism, what is the interaction between the chauffeur and man that makes the chauffeur the tool of Elul, 
And for that matter, the tool of Rosh Hashanah, the tool that we use on Rosh Hashanah, it is because the soul that hears the sound of the shofar is overcome with a sense of the realness of the humility that is logical for man to have in his relationship with God. This is what it introduces. Now, when we come to the sin of the golden calf, now that's a statement that I am going to come back to and I'm going to develop where the origins of that power are. I'm going to come back to that. Well, let's just take it as a premise for the time being. Now, when we talk about the sin of the golden calf, when we, talk, when we speak about the sin of the golden calf, let's understand something. Moses didn't come down after 40 days. They start making all kinds of calculations that he should have been back, and he's not back. What on earth could have happened to him? Okay. So they come up, okay, for various reasons, and the belief that he, that he died on the mountain, maybe he went straight to the world to come. I don't know what happened to him, but he's not coming back. And they start thinking to themselves, what can we do in the absence of Moses that will help us not lose everything? So many of the commentaries explain that that generation, there were great people in that generation that knew Kabbalistic symbolism. And in Kabbalistic symbolism, there are different animals that connotate the different attributes of God and different attributes of man. They are animals in the world, but they are symbolisms of attributes. This is something that's spoken of a lot in, in Kabbalah. Those of you that are a little bit familiar with the visions of Ezekiel know this to be true as well. So the understanding is that the Kabbalists of the generation delved into what kind of a Kabbalistic symbolism can I make that in the absence of Moses will be to me an inspiration so that I should not lose my connection to God, that I shouldn't lose my spiritual standards that I've accepted upon myself, etc., etc. And in their Kabbalistic calculations, they came up that what they needed to create as a Kabbalistic symbolism was the symbolism of the calf. The symbolism of the calf. Now listen to what's going on over here. Is this a people that are saying, oh, we don't believe in God anymore, we believe in animals, we're going to worship animals. I mean, anybody in his right mind right, can't accept that as being an interpretation of the Chumash. Because here you have a people that go through divine revelation and come from generations of belief in monotheism, and then all of a sudden, 40 days after the most divine revelation in the world, all of a sudden they're bowing down to animals. It's absurd. And therefore, the commentaries prove this, that the origin of the calf came out of the Kabbalistic circles. Right? And we know all kinds of things can come out of Kabbalistic circles. It came out of Kabbalistic circles with the calculations, with the calculations that the calf was the exact symbolism for whatever it stood for in attributes that they needed in the absence of Moses. Now, there was only one problem with this, because the Torah forbids making any kind of images out of these kinds of animals if they are to serve as any kind of a religious object. 
Because the Torah was smart enough to know that you'll start off with it being a symbolism of something and who knows where it will lead with time. So the Torah forbids making these objects and molding these objects if it's to be used in any way as a symbolism and have any relationship to religion. But the Jews said like this, that's the Torah's opinion. That's God's opinion. But in my situation, and what I need for where I am in life, it doesn't make sense. And therefore, they took it upon themselves to make their own calculations, their own judgment calls, their own wisdom and own understanding, and they proceeded to allow themselves the dispensation of building a symbolism that the Torah forbade. Now, needless to say, who was right and who was wrong in this, okay, chapter and, and verse prove that even though it started off as a Kabbalistic system, the end of it was that it became an idol of worship. Which only proves the point that you think that you're so sure of yourself, you think that you know so clearly how to handle your religion and what's right and what's wrong for you, and that in spite of, of, of advice and direction to the contrary, you'll pay attention to your mind and not God's mind, the proof is in the pudding and what happened. But I'm not saying a class tonight on the sin of the golden calf. That's not what I'm out to accomplish this evening. I just want to point out that that were the earliest origins of how the sin of the golden calf proceeded. And it's not such a peculiar thing. There are many people that walk around, granted more in California than in New York, that dabble with all kinds of Kabbalistic concepts, etc., etc., and they develop for themselves almost their own thinking about what God wants and what God doesn't want from them. Because after all, I'm majoring in Kabbalah, and I know what it's all about, and I know what works and what doesn't work, and how it works and how it doesn't work, so I'll write my own system of Judaism, tailored and custom to me. So it's not such a peculiar thing. It's a phenomenon that's current. It's a very current one, but it's a troublesome one. It's a troublesome one. Now, the point is like this. If this was the sin of the golden calf, so one could say that the sin, the origin of the sin of the golden calf was the lack of humility and the lack of trust that comes from, humi- from the perspective of humility to be able to say, I don't know what God is doing, and in my understanding, the best thing for me is this symbolism now. But if God says no, if I understand it or if I don't understand it, I have to be humble enough and I have to trust enough to know that if it was good for me, God would give me the allowance. And if it's not good for me, then I have to accept it without even under- necessarily understanding it. So one could say that the sin of the golden calf was the sin of the golden calf. But if one wants to look at the root from where did it come, what made it possible, it was because that premise that man must function beyond his ability to understand with humility and trust was not something that was present in that generation in in the amount that it needed to be. And it's not peculiar because the greatest intellectual generation of Jewish history, past, present, and future, we are told, was that generation. So it's not at all peculiar that they fell into the trap of intellectualizing themselves to the point of developing their own systems. That's not at all peculiar. It's very much in character 
to the intellectual firepower that they had. And this is why when Moses begged for forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf, and he really had to think of something good to argue, you know what he said to God? He said to God, and look at your great people. Here he's trying to ward off punishment for the sin of the golden calf, and he's turning to God and saying, look at your wonderful great people. Moses, you don't realize what's going on? We're dealing with a people that has just worshipped an idol. What are, you, what, are you, what are you flagging in front of God, this great people? What great people? Lay low and beg, but don't start saying that they're a great people. But the commentaries say that what Moses' argument was, that what they did was wrong, and I'm not whitewashing it, but understand that even what they did wrong came from their greatness. They didn't want to lose you. They were afraid they were going to lose you because they had such tremendous knowledge in Kabbalah, so they wanted to look into Kabbalah as a way of holding on. So it wasn't like a people that was rebellious and treacherously looking to, to turn away from you. They were looking to hold on to you. Okay, confused, misguided, misfocused, true. But it all came from their greatness. And that was the petition that Moses made. Now, with this understanding, with this understanding, we can understand why when Moshe Rabbeinu went up on the mountain of Sinai to pray for forgiveness, for which sin? For the sin of the golden calf. And they didn't want to make the same mistake again as they had made earlier. What did they take up into their hand in order to try to guarantee that the mistake wouldn't happen again? They took the chauffeur. Because I, I made a statement before, I made a premise before, that the chauffeur has the spiritual power of what? Invoking a sense of humility in man for God. So therefore, since they were worried that they might fall again into the same kind of mistake as the sin of the golden calf, so sure, they could have made an announcement, don't fall into the same mistake, watch your calendar carefully, but they went one better on it. They took up the sound of the shofar, which is a sound that induces an element of humility within man in the hope that everybody that would hear the sound of the shofar would be overcome with a sense of humility. If they would be overcome with a sense of humility, even if they would be tempted to make the same mistake again, they would have the backup of the humility that came out of the shofar not to allow them to make the same mistake again. So in other words, because the sin of the golden calf was a sin that was anti-humility and anti-trust, so now when they wanted to work against that, Moses was going to pray for the forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf, and we don't want to fall into the same mistake. We still, we still didn't clean up the past. So they took up the sound of the shofar, which is a sound that induces a sense of humility to ward off any possible anti-humility, anti-trust, kind of movement that might come up again and might get them into the same mess again. Now, with this, we can also understand what it means, and God was raised up with the sound of the shofar. Because so long as man stands, as, as weird as it might sound, and he pits himself up against God and he says, God, you know, you have your opinion, but Zatzmochel, please forgive me, but I've got my opinion. As long as that is the relationship between God and man, then we can say 
that certainly from the perspective of man, God is not in any high place, in any place of height, in any place of true reverence at all. But if man is prepared to say that as intelligent as I am and as spiritually sensitive as I am, the reality is that God is heads and tolls and miles above me, so then we are putting God in relationship to ourselves in, the, in his proper place. So what the, what the Pirkei de Rebelaza says is that when we blew the shofar, what were we saying? We must learn the music of humility, the music of trust that comes from humility. So the Pirkei de Rebelaza says, Once the person learns the lesson of humility, he picks up the, the flavor of what it means to stand with humility before God, so then God is raised to his proper place in the eyes of man, in the heart of man. This is what it means. So God is where he is. We don't change God. But in terms of how we conceive of the concept of God and his wisdom and so on and so forth, he's raised through the power of the shofar. <clears throat> now, let me go a little bit further here. And let me touch a little bit and let me scratch a little bit deeper into, underneath the surface of what's going on over here. It might sound peculiar to you. However, one of the greatest tensions, spiritual tensions, that exists in this world is man's ego versus God. One of the greatest difficulties that the world as a whole and man in particular has in dealing with God is not in any one single observance and not in any one, any one heeding uh, a prohibition of the Torah. If you one wants to really know in the core where is man's greatest challenge in his relationship with God is that he is not an equal with God. Now, you'll tap a lot of people on the shoulder and say, do you consider yourself an equal with God? And they'll say, of course not. But that's only said. But when it comes down to real life and the way that we function in real life, we don't always reflect that, that sureness that we have that God's miles above us. We question, we judge God, we do all kinds of things with God. And in a certain sense, to the degree that we consider God an equal, and God's got to pass my judgment instead of I passing God's judgment, in a certain sense, we take the crown of God away from him. It's not that, uh, it's not that we can really take anything away from his essence as he is, but his relationship to us as a king, as, as a true leader, and a dominating force in our lives is certainly diminished to the extent that if not on an intellectual level, but certainly on an actual behavioral level, we treat God as an equal. And there is a tremendous tension, if we want to admit it or not, there is a tension in, in accepting a sense of superiority. Now, mind you, you can accept the concept of superiority even in relationship to God so long as God doesn't mess into your business. But if the superiority will now compel you to have to live your life in a certain way or not live your life in a certain way, then the issue gets very tacky. I have an opinion. All of a sudden, superiority becomes a negligible 
factor in the equation. It's not so important anymore. It's what I want, it's me, and et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to go through that whole thing. There's a tremendous tension in man realistically accepting God and God's superiority, his uniqueness, his oneness, into one's life, especially where it might hurt or where we conceive of the fact that it might hurt. Now, so far, I've explained the concept of the shofar, just giving it as a given, that the power of the shofar is to introduce this humility, is to introduce this humility, and by introducing this humility, all right, we ward off the danger of falling into golden calf mistakes. We ward off the danger of falling back into the mistakes of the golden calf. Now, I'd like to take it one step further. So far, I've, I've developed the idea of humility and trust when a person reaches, admittedly, his intellectual limits. And then accepting that there is a wisdom that's greater than his. Right? And being able to heed that in spite of the fact that I don't understand it and it might even be contradictory to my understanding. This idea, parenthetically, has a brother or a cousin, whatever you want to call it. It has, an a, uh, it has another application that's not only in relationship to God, but is also in relationship to being able to accept the wisdom of a great experienced sage in a generation. In other words, we are not... And very often we find ourselves, and very often we find ourselves, I don't remember what I said already. Right. Eventually we'll find ourselves. Right. But the reality is that this, this phenomena of the, of the intellectual tension between God and man, this is one. This is one example of the tension that could exist between man and God. And the, now I remember already, the application of it, the application of it is true also in regards to a sage. Sometimes I don't have the experience. Sometimes I don't have the knowledge. Sometimes I'm not so spiritually evolved to know what it is that God wants from me in my particular situation. And I need to go to somebody that is more spiritually evolved, knowledgeable, experienced, etc., etc. And I have to go and I have to ask for advice. What happens if the person gives me a piece of advice that I didn't want to hear, or if I did or didn't want to hear, because we're not usually so honest about that, but I don't understand it. And the advice which I don't understand is something that to me is a change which is difficult or uncomfortable, what am I to do? Well, one way of dealing with it is saying something like this. He's made out of flesh and blood, and I'm made out of flesh and blood. Okay? He has an opinion, and I have an opinion. Okay? Is it his life, or is it my life? My life. So why should I listen? Right. Never mind that he's learned for 20, 30 years more than you. Never mind that he's got countless many more experiences than you never but for some reason man has this tremendous tension 
the ability to have to accept a rendering from somebody that, if you're honest about it, has to be more experienced than you, etc., etc. So when we talk about this idea of about accepting God's direction over our own understanding, this is not something that I'm talking to people, you know, that I'm sharing with you, because after, after this you're going to go home and you're going to phone up God and God's going to give you his opinion and you're going to say to God, I have a different opinion. Right? This is something that's relevant because when we do have to take major steps in life, we need to look for guidance. We have to ask. And when we do ask, the answers don't always come back the way that we would predict them. Believe me, they don't. Okay? There are many surprises. And the ability to have that humility and that trust, okay, as I detailed it in man's relationship with God, applies to the leaders and the guides and the counselors of a generation as well. Because if it would only apply to God and it wouldn't apply to leaders and counselors, so for all intents and purposes, we are a lost people. Because if we don't have that mechanism working, so then the only way that I could really know what's right to do is by asking God. Well, how many of you have called God and received an answer recently? And if he doesn't answer, so then you're stuck by answering your own question. So you're really left up to your own devices, which is sometimes good and obviously sometimes way off the mark. So this concept of humility and trust right, is something that applies in man's relationship with God, but it also applies, applies in man's relationship to a spiritual counselor that he is willing to accept, has the experience, the knowledge, and the understanding, okay, even though in this particular case I don't see the wisdom of the advice. This is all one subject. However, the reality is, is that this concept of humility and trust that, follow, that flows from humility has another major area, major, major area where it plays itself out. And that is not in the intellectual surrender to God, but that is in terms of the emotional ability to surrender to God. Where I have not an intellectual different opinion from God, but because I feel a certain way, and that feeling would contradict what God expects of me, etc., etc. Where I have an emotional difficulty in being able to swim with something. Where it's not intellectual, clearly not intellectual. If I would sit you down and we would have a rational and a, and a, a sane discussion, I would be able to explain play by play why God's direction is right and yours is wrong. But you say to yourself, I couldn't care less. Because I can't handle this emotionally. And emotionally I'm not in the place, and, emo and therefore emotionally I cannot let God enter because I am not prepared to let go of how I feel about this thing. Now, the reality is that when we talk about the concept of humility and trust, which leads to reasonable surrender to God because of the humility and trust, this is not only a subject in terms of intellectual surrender to God, it is also a subject in terms of emotional surrender to God. Let's face it, many of our deepest challenges in life are not played out on the intellectual plane, let's face it. Most of our deepest challenges of holding on to any kind of sanity in this world have to do with emotional challenges, not with 
not with intellectual ones. Oh yeah, we for sure we try to intellectualize our position, but let's face it, most of the stuff that makes whatever is difficult in life is the emotional stuff and the ability to say that I have a set of feelings but that I'm not going to give in to the set of feelings because I know if I give in to them I will not be able to serve my master. Arum and bedas ka'adim, intelligent, clever, sensitive and emotional like a human being. But they're prepared to take the load and they're prepared to take the work like the animal that serves its master. And this also played a key role in the sin of the golden calf. And let me explain something very fascinating here. Very fascinating. When did we receive the Ten Commandments? A quick history lesson. On six days in the month of Sivan, six days on the month of Sivan, how many days after we left Egypt? Seven full weeks after we left Egypt. Forty-nine days. When we got the Ten Commandments, on six days and seven, seven full weeks after we left Egypt, did we get the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them? Not yet. Moses was to learn the Torah for 40 days in Shemayim in heaven, and then on the 90th day from the day that we left Egypt, 49 and 40, and the next day is the 90th, he would come down with the Ten Commandments written on the tablets. So the Alshech asks the following question. If God uttered the Ten Commandments seven weeks after we left Egypt, why didn't he put it on the tablets and give it to us then? Why was he waiting for another 40 days till Moses would descend with them? On those tablets was nothing more than what was uttered then. The rest of the Torah wasn't written on them, just the Ten Commandments. So that we could have gotten hot off the press the day that, he, that God proclaimed the Ten Commandments. Why did he wait another 40 days? And mind you, it would have made a big difference because since he waited 40 days and he came down on the day that he watched us worshipping the golden calf, what did he do with the tablets? He smashed them at the foot of the mountain. If he would have brought them down when the Ten Commandments were uttered, write it when you hear it, so to speak, we would have had the first tablets. But why were they postponed? What was the idea? So the Alshach says, and listen carefully, the Alshach says, the relationship between God and the Jew, which is forged through Torah, is forged on two levels. First, there has to be an intellectual surrender to God, and then there has to be an emotional surrender to God. And the one that is easier of the two is the intellectual surrender. So seven weeks after we left Egypt, God gave us a Torah, and how did we approach it? Not for the Nishma, we are prepared to do. Now tell us what it is that we need to do. Total intellectual surrender to God. But God said that's not enough. There's another level before your relationship becomes whole and true. There has to be an emotional surrender to God. So what did God do? God purposely arranged it, that Moses would come back by the calculation of the people a little bit late, and they would automatically become very nervous, they would start worrying about themselves and all kinds of emotions would well up in them. I have been forsaken. I have been left alone. I, I've been dumped. Nobody cares about me anymore. How dare God do such a thing to me? What's coming up? If they would have sat back and they would have said to themselves, gee whiz, over the last year, every month, every morning, noon, and night, God is around the corner. So how comes then, that, Right? So intellectually, if they would have reacted to this crisis of Moses not reappearing, 
They could have argued, come on, it's not logical that he should have died. Like God should opt out of his whole relationship for nothing in the middle of nowhere. Why? Intellectually, they could have argued that it will reveal itself. Be humble enough to trust. Be humble enough to say that whatever it is that God's doing, he knows what he's doing. And I'm not going to give in to my emotions and let myself get into a spin of doing something that the Torah tells me not to do. So what our commentaries teach us is that God wanted to precipitate an emotional crisis and that the Jew should reach a place that he says, I don't care what kind of an emotional crisis that I'm in, but if God put me in it, he had a reason, and God's going to sooner or later show me what the purpose of this is, and I'm going to try to handle it. And I'm not going to right away run for shelter, and I'm right, not going to right away opt out of the directive. The Alshach says that's the second level of Torah. And had they reached it, then Moses would have come down with the law on the tablets. Then it's all yours. But because when they were tested on the emotional level, they were not prepared to emotionally surrender yet, they could not yet receive the Torah on the tablets. So the sin of the golden calf refers to the inability to have this humility and trust in God, but not only the humility and trust to intellectually surrender to God, but also to be willing to emotionally surrender to God. Now, I might say before I go any further, okay, that the word surrender I consider a horrible word. Because surrender means that you are the loser. And in that sense, this word of intellectual and emotional surrender to God is a poor use of the word. Because in reality, when a person intellectually surrenders and emotionally surrenders to God, there is a wonderful thing that eventually comes into the person's life. He begins to acquire an intellect that can understand God. And he begins to acquire emotions that are consistent with how a Jew should spiritually feel God. In other words, this isn't a surrender where you give your brains in and you give your heart in and you left bereft of a heart and brain. If a person is willing to say, I'm willing to give it over to you and I'm willing to take, I'm willing to take you on, you lead my life. So then what happens is God gifts the person with the intellectual capacity to understand what was formerly incomprehensible and to be able to feel that which he couldn't feel before. The crucial moment is, can I have the humility and the trust to bring God in, not on my terms, but on God's terms? And if I can have the humility and the trust to bring God in, so then I do bring God in fully, and then God's intellect and God's emotions become part of my own. So the word surrender in the sense of I lost and somebody else won is not a, good, not a good parallel here. Now, if I would pose the next question, we're almost finished here. We're almost, believe it or not, we're almost finished. If I would pose the following question to you, if I would pose the following question to you, is this intellectual and emotional surrender something that is characteristic of the Jew or anti-characteristic of the Jew? Which one is it? Is it characteristic or is it not characteristic of the Jew? Right. 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 So you'll all say it's not characteristic. 
We could argue, we could argue, if intellectually it's characteristic of the Jew or not. And I will not debate anybody on that. But what all of our literature teaches us, what all of our literature teaches us is, is that the Jew in his core, in his core, is not in resistance to surrendering to God. That under all of the veneers and under all of the layers of the egos that we learn from the world, the Jew wants God. Under all of the things. Under it all, that's what the Jew wants. If you would put it, take a Jew out of all of the outside world and you would put him into the Holy of Holies, absent of all of the noise and all of the static and all of the other garbage of the world that teaches us all about selfhood without God, and you would put a person in an intimate place without all of that other static of the world bombarding the person, the Jew would say, there's only one thing that I want, and it's you. That's the core of the Jew. The core of the Jew is wanting, wanting to have a total relationship with God. Now, this is why when we went into the Holy of Holies, which represents the core desire of the Jew, we don't want to bring the sin of the golden calf in there. Because the sin of the golden calf has nothing to do in the core of the Jew. The sin of the golden calf is the inability to surrender to God, the inability to trust in God, the inability to have humility before God. When you break all of the outside layers that the Jew accumulates upon himself, underneath it all, the Jew wants God. And therefore, the chauffeur that takes the Jew in, how does it take a Jew in? You know how it takes the Jew in? Because the sound of the chauffeur breaks the ego. And once you break the ego and you can have humility before God, you stand before God. The thing that holds a person outside of the inner chambers of a relationship with God is his own ego. His inability to want to intellectually and emotionally accept God where it's difficult for him to accept God. So the function of the shofar essentially is to wake up within man this humility that is really latent within the Jew that somewhere deep down under the layers is there and then when he hears the sound of the shofar when he hears the sound of the shofar it wakes up this ability that I know this all year long I say God I need my own space leave me alone I got my own opinions I have my own feelings and the sound of the shofar says quit it Jew under all of your running away you know what you really want you really want to run into God's hands Right? And you really want to give yourself into a whole relationship with God. And that's why the sin of the golden calf is not brought into the Holy of Holies, because it has no place there. That's not its place. Okay? The Holy of Holies, which is, is a representation of the core of what the Jew is, without static and without noise, is a direct contradiction to what the sin of the golden calf is all about. And therefore, the two never shall meet. The two never have... Don't, 
The two don't come together in one place because they are the antithesis of each other. <coughs> the reason why the shofar has such a power to wake up in, in heaven compassion for us in God's eyes is because it first wakes up within us a humility to stand again before God. And so long as man can be brought to standing with a humility and a trust before God so then there is still spirituality in this person's life and for that matter there is still life in this person because he still he still knows that the heartbeat that keeps him alive after everything is said and done is his return to God that's why it has such a power okay because under all of the veneers the Jew says I have to admit to the fact I need you God and not only I need you God but on a deeper level I want you now if you're wondering to yourself I believe that I've answered the questions why we blow the shofar why was the shofar blown when Moshe Rabbeinu went up it's to break the humility the sin of the golden calf why the sound of the shofar brings us to God because so long as we're willing to chip away at the arrogance and the ego that fights Fights, uh, fights God and tells us have our separate space from God. The shofar breaks that separate space and brings us back into the space with God, the Holy of Holies, brings us back into that space. Right. So we've basically dealt, we've touched upon all of the questions. Right. We've basically touched upon all of the questions and resolved them on a certain level. But the question that really remains is where did I get this piece of information from that the power of the shofar is a power that works to wake up within man the latent humility that he has for God and therefore the latent trust and ability to surrender intellectually and emotionally to God. Where is it? If you think for a moment, it's so hard to talk about because it's such a sensitive issue, but if you think about it, and if you think about your own life, and it's hard to think about one's own life because it's sometimes very painful, you will most probably find, if you're honest with yourself, that there were events that happened in your life that were really like somebody was putting his hand on your shoulder and giving you a tug, and what you did is you threw up your shoulder and said, get your paws off me, leave me alone. And this is something that if you think of it or not, think about it or not, this, these are things, there are events in every person's life that if we asked for it or not, God put his hands on us and did things. Very often things that we did not ask for, did not want, and resisted, and like, get out of here. Okay? Now we say get out of here in many different ways. Like we say it's a coincidence, or that's the way the cookie crumbles, or it just happened, or God's wrong, so I don't have to pay attention to what he's saying to me. I mean, there's a whole variety of ways that we throw up our shoulders and say, God, get your hands off me. There are many, many different ways in which we do this. But in life, but in life, this is a tension that we go through. We're not comfortable. That's part of what the, one of the biggest challenges of man is to be able to let God's hands rest upon us and even push us in a direction that we're not totally inclined to go by our own choice. 
That's accepting God as a dominating force in my life. What? Whenever I understand them, I accept them. When I don't understand them, I don't accept them. So you've accepted nothing. You've accepted yourself. You haven't accepted God. Accepting God means that even where my judgment is different because I elected you, I go by you. Did you ever hear of electing a president and when the president comes with a new idea, you say, no president. If you made him, you made him. And for better or for worse, he's your president. Now, the analogy isn't exactly the same with God. Right? But that's the same idea. You take him when you want him, you dump him when you don't. That's not what, the, that's not what it means to have a, accepting God as a king and as a dominating force. So how do you accept him in difficulty? Only if he demands and legitimately deserves the humility and the trust. But where does it come from? Where does it come from? So I'll tell you where it comes from, at least two sources, where the power of the chauffeur comes from. I'll start in one period of history and then I'll go back to the other. Quickly, don't worry. It won't take me as long as it happened in history. Right? The first event is the binding of Isaac. God comes to Abraham and says to Abraham, Abraham, as you're, as, uh, I want to ask you to do something. I've asked you for doing many difficult things. I've got another one for you. I want you to take your son Isaac of 37 years old and I want you to offer him as human sacrifice. Mazel tov. All Abraham's 137 years of his life he taught the world that human sacrifice is anti-God and anti-spiritual. And at the end of his life as a grand finale he's going to make human sacrifice of none other than his son that he waited 100 years to bring into the world intellectually comprehensible? No. Emotionally stressful? You better believe it. And Abraham was presented with an intellectual and an emotional test. Intellectually, he could have challenged God in any theological seminary across the earth. And he would have won. And emotionally, he could have torn down heaven and earth. That it, was a, that it was an emotional travesty of humanity to ask him to do what he was asked to do. And what did Abraham proceed to do? I have the humility to understand that God has his wisdom that I don't understand. And I have the humility and trust that no matter how stressful this is, I am prepared not to allow an emotion stand in the way of what God expects of me. Did he have answers? He had no answers. And he proceeded to go ahead with the test. Now, he went ahead with the test, he gets up to the final moment, and then God calls out, don't you dare touch him. Now I really know that you are a servant of God. How do I know? Because you have combined both intellectual and emotional surrender. Coincidentally, Abraham wants to make an offering to God. This has been aborted, thank God, but it's been aborted. He desperately wants to follow through on this offering to God. So God prepared from way, way back in Jewish history that in that moment of history, there would be a ram that would be enmeshed in the bushes around the altar. And God said, go take that ram that's enmeshed in the bushes around the altar and bring it up as your final testimony to your humility and trust in God. 
what you would have acted out in humility and trust upon your son, acted out upon that ram. And that ram was enmeshed in the bushes by the altar in its horns. So tradition teaches us that we take the horn that was enmeshed in the bushes around the altar and we blow it on Rosh Hashanah. Now, what does this have to do? You have to understand that if coincidentally a ram gets enmeshed in the bushes by the altar in the exact moment when Abraham wants to finish his humility and his trust in God, that it's there, not coincidentally, it's there because all of his humility and trust in God produced that he was worthy that it should be there. So what is the animal enmeshed in the bushes by its horns represent? God's response to man's humility and trust. That if you can have humility and trust, I will give you the, all of the tools to be able to have the humility and trust. In Abraham's case, it was the ram. But for all times, the symbol of the shofar that caught the animal in the bushes remains the testimony that God says that if you're only prepared to, to challenge yourself with humility and trust in me, I will give you a tool that you'll be able to blow every Rosh Hashanah to reintroduce the humility and trust to fight off the tension of, of, of ego versus God. The commentaries say very interestingly, the commentaries say that the same way that what? Listen carefully to this. This is beautiful. The same way that the animal was enmeshed in the bushes and became used as the offering of Abraham, so too for all generations of Jewish history when Jews will become enmeshed in sin, God says, fear not. Just take up the ram's horn that's enmeshed and it will free you from all of your entanglements. What is the greatest entanglement of man that leads him to sin if not his ego? That calling inside of him that says, God, I want my own turf. Get off my space. I can't trust you. I can't believe you. I got my own life to leave, lead. You're, you're spoiling life. You're threatening life. So God says, as he meshed and is entangled as we get in ourselves. You know what it's like? It's like we trip on ourselves. God says the power of the shofar will be able to tear you away. And that's why we read the portion of the binding of Isaac on Rosh Hashanah and we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah all to wake up that humility of bringing God back as the dominant force, God over ego. But the reality is that it goes one step back than that. And here, I'll keep quiet after this. The real re it really goes further back. And I'll tell you how it goes further back. And this really gives the answer to the statement that I made before, that the essence of the Jew is his ability to surrender and become wa wanting to become one with God. On the first day of creation, that being the creation of man, the day of Rosh Hashanah, after God created man, in the same way that he created everything else in the universe, what did God do? God blew into first man something that made him special and different from everything else in the universe. 
He blew into him. He blew into him a part of himself. So what took place on the, on the day of man's creation, which parallels the day of Rosh Hashanah? God blew a part of himself into man. This is what took place. So on the day of Rosh Hashanah, we take up the shofar. We take up the shofar. And what, is the, what do we do with the shofar? We blow. The power that God puts into the shofar is that the same way that on the first day of creation, I blew into you a part of myself. So your surrender to me is a surrender to the deepest part of who you are yourself. If God puts a part of his very self into us, would it be then peculiar to understand that man searches out for God? It's not at all peculiar. Because then, if what is within man is the essence of God, so then man's journey and ultimate surrender to God is not a surrender to another force, to another being, but it's really a rediscovery of the divinity that God put into him. So on every Rosh Hashanah, God puts into the power of Shafer the same blowing that he did on man's day of man's creation. What does he blow back into us? A part of his own divine essence. When man is overcome with a sense that God is not separate from me, but that God has blown a part of his own divine essence into me, man can't help but be overcome with a tremendous sense of humility that he's not going to seize onto a perception of self independent of God, but that the greatest perception of self is in realizing that God's divine essence is his very essence. So the, the quality, the, if you want to date back the power of humility that lies in the shofar, which means the ability for man to merge with God, Man's ability to merge with God because in the core, the essence of man has within it the divine essence. And therefore, man is... Every time when we talk about surrender and this and that, what is it? I give up self in order to be with God. What we're learning over here is that humility and trust in God is not giving up self for God. Yes, yeah, giving up self. The false self. Not the true self. But what real humility and trust in God is, is finding one's way back to the divine essence that was blown into man on the day of Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, before we approach the entire episode of Rosh Hashanah, which we will approach next week, right, we have a whole month of preparation, the month of El, and every morning we take up the shofar and we blow the shofar, and all of the different sounds of the shofar so as to wake up within man the memory of God blowing his divine essence into man. When man can hear with a certainty that the divine essence of God is the very core of what he is inside, it is not a surrender to God, but it is a joyful dance with God that the shofar represents.
I refer you to the Madrash. The Madrash says, the Madrash says that when, when Abraham bound Isaac to the altar, he looked into Isaac's eyes and Isaac looked into Abraham's eyes and they both began crying until they were both swimming in tears, the Madrash says. Okay? You have to understand, Abraham is a human being. Yitzhak is a human being. And they had all of the normal feelings and then some for each other. It wasn't one of these generation gap relationships that Abraham had. If there was a generation gap relationship, Isaac would never have followed a belief in what Abraham said he heard in the name of God that he was supposed to do, not with himself, but with with his son Isaac. You have to understand that these are human beings, normal people with normal emotions, with normal feelings. And even if Abraham was able to make a decision that because of my love of God I can do this, it would be totally in denial of, 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 of what a human being is to say, well, I didn't, it was easy schmeasy, I didn't have any emotional problems with sacrificing my own son. I mean, that's ridiculous. The fact that, the man could, that Abraham could have had a tremendous love relationship for God is true. Okay? But that doesn't deny that Abraham had a tremendous heart and a tremendous mind that we're intimately connected, that we're intimately connected to, 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 to Yitzhak as a, as a son. No question about it. Let me point something else out to you. Our commentaries say when God tells Abraham about the, about the binding of Isaac, it's very interesting how God said it to Abraham. He didn't say, take your son Isaac and do such and such. God said to Abraham, take your son your only son, the son that you love, Yitzchak, and go bring him up. Now, what does that suggest to us? Let me, let, me run by a, let me run a certain scenario by you. Anybody that needs to leave, feel comfortable to leave. I'm not insulted. Just don't come back next week. Um, <laughs> no, really. Anybody that needs to leave, feel free to leave. Right. The, um, let me paint the following picture for you. It's an interesting picture. If I would have been Abraham and I would have felt compelled to listen to God, okay, I don't even suppose that I would have had the righteousness to feel that. But if I would have, I would have gone immediately to my psychiatrist and said, please fill me a prescription. Okay, write me a prescription for the heaviest tranquilizers you've got. I would then go to the altar, pop as many pills as I could without killing myself, and then proceed with the binding of Isaac. Could God hold me anything against me? I went ahead. I did what he wanted me to do. But I had to space myself out before I did it. If Abraham would have done that and followed through, assuming that it, you know, he was doing what he needed to do, that would have been the murder of Isaac. Because then he did not do what the test expected. What the test expected was not a denial of emotions, a recognition of emotions, but the ability to say that whatever my emotions are, I can't let them flow inside of me in a way that they impede my relationship with God. And therefore God said to Abraham, listen carefully what I'm asking you for. Espimcha. I'm asking you to, to, to offer your son. Let's not go too fast. I'm not telling you who it is. You have two sons, right? I'm not telling you who it is. Just think about the concept of a son. Think about the concept of the love of a father for a son. Don't think about anything else. The next thing I want you to think about 
Not the concept of a son, but an only son. And then I want you to think about an only son that you get along with, that you love. And then I want you to think about Yitzchak and be prepared to do what I ask you. Clearly, clearly, it was both an an intellectual and an emotional surrender that God wanted from Abraham, but not surrender in the sense of losing, but the ability to be able to recognize a total giving of oneself, not leaving, so to speak, uh, a place where man says to God, God, you can come everywhere, but you can't mess in this area of my life. On the day of Rosh Hashanah, we say to God, we bring God back and say, God, penetrate every part of my life. I want to take you back into my life. I want to have a relationship with you. And we'll stop here.